2 Thessalonians chapter 2, hear the word of the Lord. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Throughout history, there have been many predictions about when Jesus would return. And the church got into this pretty early on. Uh, at least by about 500, there were predictions that uh, the Lord was going to return in the year 500. And then some got very, very specific. April 6, 793. And then, of course, January 1st, 1,000. 1,000 would be a, a, an important year, thinking of the millennium, and so many got on board with that. And then another, October 19th, 1533. And then October 22nd, 1844, by William Miller. And uh, that has, uh, there's still a group that uh, the, the Seventh-day Adventists don't necessarily hold to that, but they're descended from, from that movement. And then 1914, Charles Russell, that was, uh, he was the, uh, the founder of the, the, what became the Jehovah's Witnesses. And then, famously, Herbert Armstrong, you may have heard of him, uh, 1935, oh no, wait, 1943, no, wait, 1972, no, 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 that's not right, 1975. And then, once again, similar sort of thing, Edward Wisenant. He published a book that sold millions, 88 reasons why it's going to happen in 1988. And then he published another book in 1989. 
and then 1993 he predicted, and then 1994, and then he, then he gave up on the idea. Then, uh, of course, Y2K, some of us uh, remember that, in the year 2000, something uh, was going to happen then. And then, pretty famously, more recently, Harold Camping. Harold Camping had a, a, a wide uh, radio ministry, and he predicted, he, he said he had figured out the numbers in the, the Bible like no one else had, and it was definitely going to be May 21st, 2011. And then it was definitely going to be October 21st, 2011. And then, to his credit, on, on his radio program, he said, I didn't get this right, and he had to admit that. Gene Dixon, the fam famous psychic, uh, 2020, and then there was a different sort of one. And, and I mention this one because it is more similar to what we have in the text today. Emanuel Swedenborg made a different claim in 1758. He said that a year previously, Jesus actually had returned and the, the last judgment had taken place. But nobody noticed it but him. So, but he was there to tell the world that it had already happened, but it didn't happen on earth, it happened in heaven. And that was the end of Christendom, and then the new church, the real church, was going to start. And to this day, there are about 10,000 people that follow the, the new church, the, which is the, the real church in their mind, because the, the, the other church was ended uh, when that final judgment took place in 1757. That's the closest unusual teaching, as strange as that sounds to us, that Jesus came and nobody noticed, the, the, that is something of what was happening in the Thessalonian church. And so it, it, it's an unusual thing that was happening there. And what we have here in this chapter is, is Paul's call for them not to be alarmed and not to be deceived. Now, if you were here for 1 Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians, there was a lack of information about the coming of the Lord. There was a lack of information, and what they tried to do is supply the lacking information. Here, in this, uh, this letter, there is misinformation. And so in the first one, they were supplying missing information, and here they were trying to correct wrong information. In the first letter, the concern was this. Jesus hasn't come back yet, and some of our brothers and sisters have died. Will they be okay when he comes back? Or will they be missing out on something when he comes back? And in chapter 4, uh, the, the author said they will be fine. And not only will they be fine, they will be first in line. They will be before you if you're still alive. So don't worry about them. They are fine. Okay, that's one thing. That was taken care of. Now the concern in this letter, strangely, is um, that those who were still alive had somehow missed the coming of the Lord. In, in verse 2, it says, Don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, that, that, that's, that's surprising because in 1 Thessalonians, there's a description of the day of the Lord, and it is very, very noisy. It is a very noisy affair. There's the shout of command, and there is the, the trumpet, and the, the voice of the archangel. And so it's a very noisy, public, obvious affair, which is, by the way, one of the reasons that some scholars think that 2 Thessalonians actually was first. Because how could you read 1 Thessalonians and hear about this noisy coming and then think you missed it? But 
we need to be, we need to be generous and we need to be uh, indulgent with the church because this would not be the last time that strange and illogical beliefs have run through the church because some self-appointed prophet declared that he or she had received a special word from the Lord. And that continues to happen, and maybe more rapidly in our day than in others. And you hear about these things, and you scratch your head, and you say, how can somebody believe these things? And so we need to be very careful. And in fact, we have a modern sort of version of this, a modern version of this idea that the Lord has already come. And what is it? It's the prosperity gospel. Because what does the prosperity gospel say? The prosperity gospel says you can have absolutely everything now. In other words, you can be as if the Lord had already come, as if we were already in the new heavens and the new earth, as if the kingdom were already consummated. You can have it all right now. And so we in our day are believing something. I'm not saying we personally, but, but many in the church are believing a, 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 a false teaching about the coming of the Lord. Um, promising health and wealth for believers, but suspiciously uh, obtaining health and wealth mainly for the preachers who preach it. And by the way, if there's a message whose primary beneficiaries are those who preach it, beware. If the primary ones who benefit from a message are those who preach that message, then, then there's something very suspicious about that message. And that, that's shot through this, uh, this gospel, uh, this prosperity gospel. Um, I, I, this came home to me very strongly down in Guadalajara. Uh, I'd come in from a Bible study on Wednesday nights. And in our neighborhood, it wasn't a closed-off neighborhood, but it, was, it, was a, it wasn't walled off or anything. But it was a neighborhood where there's some sort of, of trust in one another. And so people would hitchhike when my cars would break down, which they sort of did often in those days. I would hitchhike too, and I'd get to know neighbors that way. And, and I would try to, to pick up people that seemed like they're in distress. So Wednesday nights, I'd be coming in, and there are, all these, there are always these two young women there, and they were domestic workers. So they worked in somebody's home, and they were rather frightened. And, and so I, I offered to, to take them wherever they're going, and they would have me take them to the block. They wouldn't ever want me to see, which was understandable, exactly where they were going. And and so I, I got to be picking them up, and I, they were very frightened sitting in the back, and I was trying to help them to understand. I was trying to help them and not do them any harm, but began to engage them in conversation. And I just, I just came from a Bible study. I'm a pastor. And uh, just to try to ask them a few questions, I said, oh, well, we just came from church. Oh, I said, well, wonderful. What church? And they said, pare de sufrir, which means stop suffering. The name of the church is Stop Suffering. And the, the pastors of that church uh, have been exposed to be living in great opulence, to be raking in tons of money. And I wanted to say to these two young women, I wanted to ask them a question, but I didn't want to kind of overwhelm them or put them on the spot. But I wanted to say to these two young women who were working in somebody else's home as domestic servants and say, well, has it worked? Have you stopped suffering? So you're, you're giving and you're giving and you're going and you're believing this. And there... And they're raking it in. And how about you? How's it working out for you? You see, that's, that's, that's a version uh, today of something like this. Now, the text says, don't be deceived. And that's something that we need to hear today. Don't be deceived by false gospels. Verse 3, it says, let no one deceive you 
in any way. And then what Paul does here is he reviews, he reviews what he taught them when he was there. So remember, Paul and his companions went, they evangelized in Thessalonica, they got kicked out, and then they wrote at least two letters, and they sent Timothy back in to see how they were doing. And so he says, do you remember what I said when we were there? And what he says is, he, he said that it, the, the coming of the, the, there are a number of ways he could have argued this, but he says, the coming of the Lord has not happened yet because there are two events that happen to happen, have to happen before that. And if these two events haven't happened yet, then that, that next one hasn't happened. So before the coming of the Lord, uh, two things have to happen. If you look at verse 3, for the day will not come unless the rebellion, that's the first thing, the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So those two things happen to have, have, have to happen first. The, the, the rebellion, it's the apostasy, the falling away, and the revelation of the lawless one. And uh, not until those two things happen can the, the Lord Jesus Christ return. So if those haven't happened yet, then the Lord has not come back. And that's the way he's arguing. He could have argued a number of different ways. He could have argued from the noisiness or the obviousness of it or a number of things. But he said uh, these two things have to happen first. And this is where we get into some very difficult interpretive challenges. Uh, he talks about this one in verse 4. He opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And then Paul says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And so this one will present himself and proclaim himself to be God. In other words, he will try to take the place of Christ. Now listen to this description. It says that he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now if you took that aside, actually that describes Jesus, doesn't it? If you took that out and just looked at it in some other context, uh, Jesus opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, doesn't he? Jesus takes his seat in the temple. He did that when he was on earth, and he proclaimed himself to be God. And so what is this lawless one doing? He is a substitute Christ. He is the one that is putting himself in the place of God who became man. He is saying, no, I am now that one. I am now God in the flesh, and so you should worship me. And so he is he is taking the place of Christ, which is why many identify this lawless one with antichrist, because he is against Christ, and he is trying to put himself in the place of Christ, God in human flesh. Um, before this lawless one, so here we're, we're looking at the events. This lawless one has to be revealed first, and then Jesus come. But before this lawless one can be revealed, this restraining force or person needs to be removed. And here we're getting into more challenges. Um, there, there is in verse 6, and he says, and you know. He says to the Thessalonians, and you know, but we don't. Okay, he says, you know, and they understood what he was talking about. He says, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it 
will do so until he is out of the way. What does that mean? Well, there are many ideas about what that means, but there is a challenge here because first, as our, as our translation indicates, it says in verse 6, and you know what is restraining him. What? And in the language here, as in, for example, Spanish and other languages, uh, nouns have gender. They can be masculine, they can be feminine, or they can be neuter. And so you speak about a person as he or she, and we do this in English, and you speak about a thing as what? It. You don't call a person it, unless you're trying to insult that person, and you may, out of, out of affection, call your car she or something like that, but, but you realize that it's an it, it's not a person, okay? And so we have that in our language as well. And so the first time it mentions this restrainer, it refers to the restrainer as it, neuter, not a person, a something, a force, some sort of thing. But then it says uh, in verse 7, um, he who now restrains it. Now this restrainer is masculine. And so there are various, various suppositions about who this or what this restrainer might be. And I do not propose to solve that today. But there is an intriguing connection between two similar situations. If you go back to Daniel chapter 10, Daniel chapter 10, and if you go ahead to Revelation chapter 20, that famous text about the thousand years, you find in both of those sections there is satanic force and there is an angel in each case holding it back. There is Michael the archangel in the time of Daniel that is holding off the, the prince of Persia, uh, the wicked forces uh, that are controlling Persia, and then if you go to Revelation chapter 20, there is the angel who comes down and throws uh, the, the evil one into the pit and binds him there for a thousand years. And so perhaps, perhaps this could be an angelic force. And you can imagine referring to an angel as he, or you can imagine without disrespect referring to an angel as it. That's, that's a suggestion. It's the best I have, the most convincing for me, but there are many, many suggestions about what or who this restraining force is. But however that might be, when the restraining force is taken off, the lawless one will be revealed. And when he's revealed, it will be all over for him. Verse 8. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So when he appears, he will be destroyed by the Lord Jesus when the Lord Jesus comes. And so there's a restraining force now. That restraining force is let go. It's taken out of the way. And many ideas about if that's, if that's violently or if that's voluntarily, it depends on what that force is. But that restraining force is let go, the lawless one is revealed, and the Lord Jesus takes him out and destroys his work. But, but, there is a time that's not described how long between these two comings, the coming of the lawless one and the coming of Jesus. The coming of the lawless one and the coming of Jesus. And it says here in verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders 
with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. So there are two comings. Verse 8 is the coming of Jesus. Verse 9 is the coming of the lawless one. And these are presented in, not in chronological order. So the first is the coming of the lawless one, and then there's the coming of Jesus. But there is a period between these two comings. It's not described how long here. And it says during that period, things will be very, very bad. Because that, that lawless one will be exercising the, the power of Satan himself and will be producing false signs and wonders and wicked deception. And he will succeed in deceiving, it describes here, as those who are perishing. And why do they perish? Well, they perish because they're deceived by this power of Satan. But it says they refused to love the truth. They refused to believe and so be saved. So this is, this is, uh, this is what we find all through Scripture. We have powers that are greater than us working, and we also have our own responsibility. So whose fault is it that they perish? Well, there are two ways to answer that. It is because of satanic activity. It is, it is Satan's fault, and it's because they refused to believe the truth. They refused to hear the gospel and believe it and so be saved. And then it says that actually God confirms them in that. And this, this is, this is a, very, a very disturbing idea because it, it confirms them in their, their unbelief. And it says in verse 11, Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And so here it says that God, because they refused to believe the truth, God confirmed them in that by sending this delusion. This is not the first or only time we find this in Scripture. You remember the case of Pharaoh, all right? Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. We find all three expressions in there. Or if you go to the first chapter of Romans, it says that they knew the truth, but they suppressed it in unrighteousness. And it says three times, so God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. Basically saying, so this is what you want? Go ahead. Go ahead. And that's a, that's, a, a very, that's a very tragic sort of idea where God says to humans, this is what you want. You don't want the truth, then go with your lie. We can almost think of Jesus saying to Judas, what you have to do, go do it quickly. If this is what you want, then go do this. Now, this is supposed to be Supposed to be comforting the believers, but this is not very comforting up to this point, is it? But then there's a transition in verse 13. And here there's this contrast. And he says, but we, when we think about you, we ought to give thanks for you. And this is an unusual expression, but we find it twice in this letter. He doesn't just say, we give thanks for you. They write here, we ought, we are obligated, we must give thanks for you. This is the second time, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. 
because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And then they say it again. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. And he says, why? Because God chose you. God chose you. As the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And so we have the parallel situation here. We have a, a superhuman force in the case of those who are perishing. We have satanic force and we have human choice. We have the delusion, the deception, and we have the human choice to believe and not to believe the truth, to believe what is false. And then in the, on the other side, this is the contrast. We have God's sovereign power. He chose you. He chose you. You are his first fruits. You are the first harvest of those in Thessalonica. And by the way, that's saying there are more coming. You may feel like a little tiny church in a city that hates you, but there are more coming. You're just the first fruits. You're the first of the harvest. More are coming. He says God chose you for that through the sanctification by the Spirit, the, the setting apart by the Spirit. So this is all God's work. And then what does he say? And belief in the truth. Belief in the truth. So why were they, why were they the first fruits? Why were they God's people in Thessalonica? Because God chose them and he set them apart. He sanctified them. And because they believed the truth. And you see how these two things are, are, are side by side in Scripture without any sense of contradiction. And we see this, we see this actually four times, this idea of, of loving the truth, believing the truth. In verse 10, uh, they refused to love the truth. Um, they believed what is false, verse 11. And then in verse 12, they did not believe the truth. And then the contrast, but you, you are God's first fruit to sanctification by believing the truth, by believing the truth. And here he describes the, the Christians using Language from the Old Testament. It says, brothers, beloved by the Lord. Beloved by the Lord. That's an expression that shows up once in the Old Testament. And it applies not, not even generally to God's people, the Israelites. It applies to the tribe of Benjamin. And so here was Paul, a Benjamite, sharing the Benjamite description. Who are the Benjamites? We are loved by the Lord. And now he's saying to these mostly or completely Gentile, non-Jewish, Greeks, Macedonians in, in this, this city, Thessalonica, who are believing in Jesus. He said, you're the Benjamites now. You're the ones who are beloved by the Lord. He also calls them the chosen ones. That's, that's what the people of God in the Old Testament were. Do you see how he's saying, you are that which Israel was. You are in that favored position that Israel enjoyed. You are the chosen by God. And you are those who are saved because of belief in the truth, having been set apart by the Spirit. And the purpose in verse 14, to this he has called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the, the end of the, 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 the contrast here. So those who are perishing, they inherit what? They inherit destruction. Those who are, are believing the truth, having been chosen and, and set apart, what do they inherit? Or I should say, if we are believers, then what do we inherit? Glory. We are to receive the glory, inherit the glory, obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, appropriately, this ends with 
a, an instruction, and then it ends with a prayer. It says in verse 15, instruction, so then, brothers, stand firm. After all that, what does he say? Stand firm. And hold to the traditions. Traditions here are things handed over that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, they had been deceived by what? They're not sure, but if you go back and look at at verse 3 or 2, it says, don't be quickly shaken in mind, either by three options, a spirit, a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us. And then when he says what you should stand on, he takes out that spirit option, and he says, stand on what you have heard us say to you, and stand on that which we have written to you. And so if a spirit speaks, or if somebody claims to be speaking according to a spirit, the spirit or a spirit told me this, we have objective ways to verify that. We have either what Paul has told us in our hearing or what he's written to us and other apostles have written to us. And obviously we don't have that first one, so we're reduced to what? We're reduced to one option here. But we are in a great advantage over them. How many letters of Paul did they have? One? Two? Maybe they got to read some of the other ones that began to circulate very, very early on. We have all of these that are collected in the New Testament, plus Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Peter, and James, and Judas. We, we have the, the, the letter to the Hebrews as well. We, we have this collection here. And so it, it's not difficult for us to figure out what's he talking about here. Where do we find apostolic teaching? Where do we find it? We find it in the word, the written word that we all have in front of us today. And that's it. Stand firm. Believe the truth and stand on it. That's why we, we try to teach the Bible whenever we get together and study the Bible. Uh, that's why, that's why we, we encourage reading the Bible in your homes, by yourself, as couples, as families. Get in the word. Read the word. Believe the word. Stand firm in the word. And then, once again, we find this side by side, our responsibility and God's power. And so it ends with a prayer. Or something like a prayer, a wish. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Once again, do you see the side by side here? This, you do this. You stand firm and God establish them. You stand firm and may God establish you. There's something unusual here that doesn't come out in the English translation. Um, and that is another thing about the, the, the language used here in the New Testament is that uh, we have this to some degree, but not quite as obvious, but the verbs have number, and so they're singular or they're plural. And so what we have here, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, and then it says, it's hard to know how to translate this, but who loved us 
and gave us eternal encouragement, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. These verbs, loved, gave, comfort, and establish, are singular. They're all singular. Now, I don't want to get us too, too lost in, in grammar, but there are two subjects here. May our God, or may the Lord Jesus Christ, and God our Father. How many is that? That's two. May he, or he who loved you, he who gave you eternal comfort, may he comfort you and establish you in every good work and word. What do we have here? We have something that is assumed all through the New Testament. Even if they're not pounding the table, always in saying, there is one God, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and the Father, Son, and Spirit are three persons, which is the doctrine of the Trinity. They're assuming it throughout. Here we have God the Father, the Lord Jesus, may he comfort you. And here we have in this, this unusual construction, we have the distinctness between the Lord Jesus and God the Father, and we also have the unity of uh, God the Father and the Lord Jesus. They, he, loved us and gave us eternal comfort and hope. How did they, he, love us? Well, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. They, he, loved us by Jesus' coming. May they, he, encourage our hearts. May they, he, strengthen us for every good work and word. And this mention of work prepares us for the third chapter, that if you come back next week, we'll see what that's about. It's about work. But for now, what do we have? We have a pretty terrifying description of the lawless one and what he will do when he comes. And we have a comforting declaration that sometime after he comes, he and his works will be destroyed. And those who have been chosen by God those who have been set apart by God, those who are the beloved of God, those who believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day, those who believe that message will be fine, no matter what happens, no matter when it happens. I have had over the years believers, even members of my church, present to me with great enthusiasm complicated schemes that somebody has figured out about when the Lord is going to return. And what I try to do is listen politely. These are brothers in the Lord, and I want to show them respect. I try to listen politely, and then after listening, in one case for three hours to this, this description, I ask a simple question, and it's this. So what? So what? Even if everything you've said works out just like you said, what difference does it make in my life? Because if there is something that as a Christian I should be doing or saying or believing, then I should do it now. Whether Jesus is coming back tomorrow or in a gazillion years, and if there is something as a Christian that I should not be doing or saying or believing or thinking, then I should give that up now. 
regardless of when Jesus is coming back? That's the question. What difference does it make to how I live my life now? Well, I have read that there's some predictions circulating. 2024, 2025, 2029, 2057. So there's still an opportunity to get on board with, with this sort of thing. And you can make special plans for these dates or any others that you're able to figure out. Or you can simply believe the gospel and stand firm in the truth. And then you will always be ready for whatever comes. Let's pray. Our God, we pray for ourselves that we would not believe lies, that we would believe the truth of the gospel, and that we would build our lives always on the truth that we find revealed in your word, that you would keep us from going astray, that you would help us always to be solid, comforted, firm, established in our faith, so that whatever assaults us in life, whatever twists and turns, or whenever Jesus comes back, that we would be ready, that we would be established in every good work, in every good word that you have prepared for us to walk in before the foundation of the world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.